Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be back this Shabbat. Um, I want to welcome the friends who are here in room 2425, and thank you for being here in person. I want to welcome our friends who are learning online. Thank you for those who are learning online. I want to frame uh, our, our conversation today about two models for an age of anxiety by just kind of naming uh, the elephant in the room and just talking about what are the specific Jewish pressure points or pain points this elephant in the room brings us. And that is, of course, uh, the, the election season. Um, last week in Israel, this coming Tuesday in America. And my point of departure is a very interesting podcast that Ezra Klein recorded. It's the most recent Ezra Klein podcast on the ascent of the far right. And, and here's something that I think should be non-controversial for this room, wherever you stand on the political spectrum. Uh, Ezra Klein talks about why is it that the far right is ascendant throughout the world. And he's interviewing a scholar from the Harvard Kennedy School. And she talks about the fact that in Sweden, for example, the far right says uh, we need to make Sweden more Swedish again. Right, that's the call of the far right in Sweden. And that, and that party has energy, according to this Kennedy School scholar. Let's make Sweden more Swedish again. So what are the pressure points? There's like three pressure points for Jews. First of all, the Torah says 36 times, uh, have compassion and solicitude for the most vulnerable people in society, the oppressed, the poor, the people on the margins. And the non-Swedish in Swedish are in Sweden are that. Um, we were the that in Egypt, right? And we are literally commanded by our Torah, commanded by our God, to have solicitude for those on the margins. That's point one. Point two, guess who never fares well when Sweden goes more Swedish? Jews never fare well, right? That's a, that is a story that just recurs throughout Jewish history. When the host country decides we're going to focus on the pure blood of the host in Sweden, it's going to be more Swedish. That never ends well, never ends well for the Jewish people. And of course, the third pain point is that we just did that ourselves. Uh, the Jewish country is going to be more Jewish. Otsma Yehudit. And a guy who's had a Borach Goldstein portrait in his house. And a guy whose hero is Mayor Kahana is now the king of Israel, in Israel. So it seems like it's not only Sweden that's going more Swedish, right? So th that's a lot of anxiety to assimilate. And what I want to share with you is, uh, is what do we do about it here? Uh, we don't live in Sweden, and we don't live in Israel. We do live in America. We have our own version of that anxiety coming up next Tuesday. How do we think about our response, and what, what are some Jewish values and Jewish models and Jewish lenses that can help us think about this moment. So let's first thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch atah adnai Elohim melech haolam asher kiddushanu mitzvatah v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah v'ha'arev na adnai Elohim et divrei Torah b'fihnu v'fi amcha b'yisrael v'nihya anachnu v'tasa'inu v'tasa'ay amcha b'yisrael kulam yod e'shmecha v'lamdei Torah t'halishma Baruch atah noi hamalame Torah la'amo Yisrael. Baruch atah noi Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher bach arvanu mikoho amim. V'natan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah noi noten ha-Torah. So I want to start with uh, 
an insight that, that I had um, last week when I was in Israel. It was Parshat Noach. And um, one of the joys and glories of, of being in a lifelong dialogue with the Torah is that you can take a look at a portion that you have seen throughout your life on 61, and all of a sudden you just read it in a radically different way. So um, I was just seeing all this energy for Ben Gavir in it, literally the streets of Jerusalem. I didn't even know who he was until it was explained to me, and I was just seeing a lot of more energy for Ben Gavir than for anybody. Um, and jumping up and down with his name, jumping up and down with his name, and, and, and I knew about the Borach Goldstein portrait, and it was like super scary. And, I f and then comes Noah. And here's the insight that I had about Noah in the week of Ben Gavir. Noah ain't no child story. That what, what is Noah? So, so Noah is, is dealing with a world that's Malay Hamas, full of violence. And what does Noah do? He says, ah, that world, ah, I'm going I'm to be secluded in my safe ark. I'm going to be safe at home in my ark. I'm going to focus on the people that I love most, my wife, my kids, their wives. And we're going we're gonna to be okay. The world's literally dying. The world is literally dying. I'm going to be okay. And it made me realize that I do Noah every day of the, of, of the year. And we do Noah every day of the year. And the Noah impulse is the impulse to look at the world that is Malay Hamas. Like it's just so full of bad energy. And it's so full of bad energy that I can't do anything about that my response to the world and all of its bad energy is to find a teva, to find an ark, to find a safe space. And uh, to lock myself in, to focus on my world. And what happens to the world? I, I, I just can't own it, right? And I realize that every, every morning I go to the Grand Chapel, that's Noah's Ark. And every evening I go to the Grand Chapel, that's Noah's Ark. And every time I come home to share and give her a kiss, and how was your day, dear? How was your day, dear? And we go to sleep talking about the shul and talking about her day. And I know what's happening in the world, that Sweden is growing more Swedish. I'm in Noah's Ark. So my, qu my question, first question for you guys is, how do you read Noah's Ark in the season that we're in, and what does it say to you now? I want to discuss, like, you know, the, the text says, you know, Kenin Hayab Tag, and that's such a complex thing to think about, especially in the way that you just framed the story. So what does that, what does that possibly mean about Noah, that he was... Um, that he has more, that he's better than other people, that he's more perfect. And yet, as you've clearly outlined, um, his being better is someone who's an isolationist. Um, it's just, it's a question to think about. I never really pictured that until you just brought, brought it up in a particular way. Um, and, uh, you know, why he was chosen by God uh, to then carry on the uh, legacy of humankind, which, again, uh, was clearly didn't go well, <laughs> um, is also another, another you know, question about this. In other words, maybe the message that's being brought is he, that, that, his, that his simply following the um, directives uh, is clearly not enough, uh, and that God didn't even realize that until afterwards. So maybe there's a growth moment here for God and for the development of humankind uh, in that moment. So your question actually troubles the rabbis who wrote the Midrash, and there are sort of two responses, right? One is 
Well, Noah obviously was just Sadiq Dodorikov, just in his generation. And if he had lived in the generation of Abraham, you know, kaput, there, he, he would not have even measured up the lowliest person with Abraham around. And or Abraham would have kind of lifted him to be even greater. But two sides of that coin. And then there's, so that's one instinct. Yeah, he was an isolationist. That's, that's really bad. You can't just let the whole world drown. Um, Abraham stood up. The other instinct, though, is the one embodied by the Midrash. It's one, a Midrash that I actually love, um, which says that it took 120 years to build the ark. And what that meant was every day Noah was actually the opposite of an isolationist. He was saying, guys, please pick up a hammer, join me, be part of this endeavor, build your own ark. We need each of us to have these arcs, and if every person were to build their ark in their righteousness, in their space, in their way, including in Sweden, then the world would be a whole lot better place. And Michelle Robinson, do you think that that is shot, or do you think that is wild and crazy drush? Um, I, <laughs> I think there's no such thing as wild and crazy drush. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Do you think that's shot, or do you think that's drush? Um, I... <laughs> Um, I, can I can I say a little bit of both? I think I think in a sense it's our way of making sense of the Noah story, mm. because really, um, and by the way, both of those midrashim, right? The midrash about you know he's not like Abraham. Let's compare him to Abraham is one way of making sense of our world. You've got to go out there. You've got to be arguing with God. You've got to be doing justice for and speaking truth to power. Mm. And the other instinct is actually that. It, we do need to build our arcs. We do need to make spaces in this world that are safe from which we get strength so that we can repair our families and then our families can repair their neighborhoods and then the neighborhoods can repair the cities and then the cities can repair the countries and the countries can repair our right. world. So both so are true. Let me, before, I get, before I get to this side of the room, I want to I wanna just dwell for a second on on Noah and this question of Peshat and Drash, because that's a, ra- a Midrash that Rashi brings, okay? Um, you might have guessed from my question, I think that's <laughs> a crazy Drash, but, but on the other hand, I think it's also, again, I had a revelation, epiphany in Israel reading this the week of Ben Gavir, that we, uh, I always found the following terrifying, and now I find it really terrifying because it's me. It's you, it's us. And it's me, and it's you, and it's us every day. And I always used to judge Noah. What a schmo. Um, and then I realized, we're, you're the schmo. So here it is, okay. Um, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness, Hamas. Um, because of them, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Then make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make it an ark with compartments to cover it inside and out with pitch. And then a lot of cubits. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Okay? Um, Put the entrance to the ark in the side. Make it with bottom, second, and third decks. And I'm like, the whole world's going to die, and you give them a cubit. And then, for my part, I'm about to bring the flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh under the sky in which there is breath of life. Everything on earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark with your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives. And all of all that, lives, you, etc. Okay, and then, what does Noah do? 
Vayas Noach Shachol Hashetuva Oto Elohim Kein Asa. Noah did so just as God commanded him, so he did. So it seems like Noah, the pshat seems to be that in response to a world of danger, Noah has some OCD, and God has some OCD, and focuses on cubits, and focuses on, you know, do I have enough toilet paper? And uh, where where are we going to get toilet paper? And focuses on, do I have enough beans? Where am I going to get enough beans? He makes sure he's got toilet paper. He makes sure he's got beans. Those wipes, uh, those handy wipes for the counter, where and fantastic and paper towel. Where where do I get where do I get wipes? How do I get wipes? He just can't find wipes anymore, right? That's wipes, cubits, beans, cubits, toilet paper, cubits. So here's my question. You know, what's your response to this to this move? <laughs> um. <coughs> What's interesting to me about the Noah story is that we pick up at the least helpful place because we've actually missed any time you have a disaster. It's rare that it happens all of a sudden, like that, that out of the blue, all of a sudden the world is a disaster and God has to destroy it, right? We've missed all of the microaggressions. We've missed all of the small acts of violence. We've missed all of the opportunities where the society could have um, come back, and we actually don't know what Noah did during those moments, right? It's like global warming, where you, you come to a moment where it's just like, the world is too hot and you can't, but but there were so many moments that we could have pulled back and we could have changed course and we could have made different choices that would have been, right? So, it's a really strange thing, and, and yeah, in this moment, I don't know, cubits, or I don't know, 120 years, but it's like, the, the part that we want to know about is is, before the world was irredeemable, where was Noah and what was he doing? Because once it's reached a disaster point, once it's reached a tipping point, no one can fix it, no matter how righteous you are. I have a question for you. Yes. And then, I, and if you allow me, I want to go back to your yes. original, uh, how you open the book. The question for me is the following. It's, it's a little funny, but, you know, it's not that funny. Yes. Suppose that God <laughs> talking about the end of the world? It's not so funny. Yes. Okay. Rabbi Garden Schultz. Yes. Suppose that you are, you know, in your office, and God comes to you and says, dear wet. I'm going to destroy the world. And the other option is for you, because you are the only tzaddik here, right. to put you in a room with nine other people who validate the January attack to the, to the White House. And they said to you, Wes, your task is either to convince them that they were wrong, or if you can't, I'm going to kill them all. What would you do? I would probably do what Noah does at the end of the story, which is drink a lot. Uh, so, perfect answer. Probably. Thank you, Rabbi. So I, I wanna, I wanna just, wait, I wanna. Wait, wait. Wait. Can, I say, can I say something? Yes. Can I say something before what, how yes. you started? Because oh, I, okay. I don't think you are completely right about this. Um, I went down to Argentina to see my mother, and I have a very influential brother, who is um, uh, like like the White House here. He's a journalist. He's the pink house down there because the government house is pink. So he says, Elias, I want you to come and visit the pink house with me because I don't think you ever visited. I go there. The pink house is empty. Supposed to be the president. Supposed to be all the all the help, all the security. The house is empty. Why? All the Argentinian government traveled to Brazil to celebrate with Lula, the far left new elected president in Brazil. 
because they are so happy because in Argentina it's the far left movement, okay? If you only look at America and Europe, you could say, or Israel, the far right is on the right. But there are other parts in the world. China doesn't have a far right uh, government, and it's horrible. Look at the Russian Jews that came to America in the late 80s. They didn't know what Judaism was because the far left government didn't allow most of them to be Jews. So what I'm saying is that not only far right governments, we as Jewish people struggle. Right. Okay. So um, we have to look at the bigger picture. Good well. enough. I want. Thank you. I, I want to just. I want to um, just ask the last question about Noah before we pivot to to Abraham. Can I announce it about the. Uh, yes. Uh, um, we'll have a scotch slice. Um, I want to ask you the question: Is does this story end hopefully, or does the story end not hopefully? Now we know that from Noah's point of view, I'll just close. You know, Noah, the tiller of the soil, was the first to plant the vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and he uncovered himself within his tent. Ham, the father of Noah, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. That never is a good ending. Right, so it doesn't end well for Noah, and he curses his own father. Okay, I guess it's the curse of Ham. Okay, but from what what about God? So um, so God says that I um, uh, that I will maintain my covenant with you, Noah and his descendants. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then he says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature so that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, and this Hebrew is very resonant, when the rainbow is in the cloud, when the multicolored is in the grave, okay? Um, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures, okay? So my question is, how do you unpack the end of the story where Noah is, you know, clearly depressed and drunk and does something untoward and his family is destroyed and he curses his own son and grand grandchildren. Not a happy ending. But then you have the rainbow and the clouds and the promise, I'm never going to do this again. And then you have, significantly, as you all know, this Parshat Noah doesn't end with Noah, it ends with Abraham. It ends with the introduction of Abraham, the beginning of Abraham's story. So my question to you, does this story end hopefully or not? So I think it doesn't end hopefully. Um, may, uh, you know, the introduction of Abraham, yes, but uh, but for Noah personally, it doesn't end hopefully. But there's a there's a textual nu uh, nuance that, that I just realized um, that connects uh, this week's parsha and Parshat Noah. In this week's parsha, um, we have Lech Lecha, and when God commands Noah to build the Aron, it's Ase Lecha. So the idea that it's um, that there's that there's a choice there. Noah is in a certain way given a choice. I say lecha, make for yourself an ark. Um, so Noah Noah could have said, well, wait a minute, this gives me an opportunity to step up. Abraham takes that same opportunity, lech lecha me'artzecha, and then he makes he takes that opportunity and and moves it in the exact opposite direction. Uh, of Noah, so I think that's a, that's a, again for textual Noah. I never noticed till yeah. you brought up the textual thing. To me, uh, the end is optimistic. Sorry, I disagree with you. Yeah. That's because okay. uh, for Noah, it ends horrible, but for humankind, it ends in a better way. Mm -hmm. God right. realizes that even 
he or she or it or they made a mistake. Right. That, you know, taking one person who is a tzaddik and then expecting that he will create a new world yeah. clearly fails. So let's let's pivot for a second then from that to I'll, I'll go with that read. It doesn't mm-hmm. end well for Noah, which could be a lesson that just secluding yourself in your own you know privileged place when the world is on fire or in the middle of a flood is not a recipe for happiness, right? Doesn't end well for him. But God says, you know, I'm not going to give up on people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give up, and we got to work with what we got. We got to work with what we got. Okay, enter Abraham now. Uh, I was at Minion on uh, Thursday, and Rick Thal asked after the Thursday morning Torah reading, why Abraham? That, is, of course, is the question. So all you who are here and all you at home, look on page 7. And um, this is a famous, the famous uh, Midrash that tries to answer the question, why Abraham? And this comes from the teaching of Rabbi Lauren Birkin at Harvard, uh, at, uh, at, at, at Hartman, at Hartman, and she taught it during the summer of 2020, uh, when everything was online. So, Michelle, would you kindly read this famous midrash on page seven? The Lord said to Abraham, "Lech lecha, go forth from your land." Rabbi Isaac said, "This may be compared to a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a palace in flames. He wondered, is it possible that this palace has no one who looks after it, no manhig?" The owner of the palace looked out at him and said, I am the owner, Rabbah, of this place. Similarly, because Abraham, our father, wondered, is it possible that this world is without a leader, a manhig? The blessed and holy one looked out at him and said, I am the owner, Rabbah, of the world. Okay, so at, this, is, this is the text that tries to answer the question why Abraham. And Shai Held's article, which is attached as well, pages 8 through 11, makes a point about the Hebrew, which is, uh, I just love this, that birad doleket is a perfect-willed ambiguity. It either means a building that's on fire, or it means that it's a building that's glowing and radiant. In either case, um, Abraham kind of does what Moses does with the burning bush. He notes it. He sees it. Remember, Lisa, you once gave a sermon, like your first year, about this dude who's a classical violinist and plays in the Washington metro, the Washington subway, and is playing like the most gorgeous music from the most glorious composers, and he's the most talented cellist in the world, or whatever, violinist, whatever he was playing, and literally no one paid it heed, right? And, um, and, Moses is picked because Moses pays heed to the violinist in the subway. And Abraham is picked because he pays heed to the building. And either the building is on fire, in which case the heed that he pays is, what can I do to renew this building? Or the building is glowing, and Abraham here is a paladin of radical amazement. Oh, my God. What a glorious world we live in. And Shai's point is that it's both. That Abraham pays heed, and when the building's on fire, he restores it. And when the building is glowing, he admires it. And that that is Abraham's call. So, first, what do you guys think about this Midrash and Shai's interpretation? And what's its message to us today? So, I think that... There's a really interesting piece in the progression from Noach to Lech Lecha, 
I think that the second half of Noach is the, is the Tower of Babel, and both are stories about crushing diversity. Both are stories about when you have a myopic focus, when you're um, when you stifle the small voices around you, when you have everybody's driving for one point and it's the wrong point. And Avram is the is the opposite. He's the small minority perspective that's trying to build a place in the world. Um, and so I think that. Um, this, this text speaks to the importance of really of, of seeing your light, finding your light, and, and finding that truth. And in the midst of a world that doesn't see it, and that we all have to amplify everyone that sees that light. Yeah. Well, there's two things. I think the one, one is um, going back to the, the flood itself and God's promise that it's not going to happen again. That's clearly not true. And we see it time and time again where... We just had Pakistan. Know, Pakistan. Pakistan, right? Pakistan. So, yeah, Last and, and, and it, it, maybe we've had other incidents. So, what does that mean about God's responsibility to His own promises? Uh, and then this, you know, this the, the word galeket. And is there a baal? Right. The question is, is there a baal? So, if 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 the building is in fact burning, and the baal looks out, where's he looking out from? It doesn't say where. And then he's looking out, and and he says, "I'm the owner." What's he doing about it? He's like he's, he's waiting. He's either waiting for someone to help, but but there's no but there's like this question of responsibility about God's responsibility. How God is trying to put responsibility on on us, but doesn't God have responsibility as well to help us? And maybe God's not helping us at this moment uh, if it's on fire. And if it's actually glowing with with a, with beautiful illumination, uh, the, then the other question is how come. How come other people aren't seeing it? If the just because the illumination is there, why aren't we seeing it? So what is what is God not doing to to not allow us to see it? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chazan. No, I'll let you speak. This, you know, I'm wondering where's in everybody here, all my colleagues, if there is a third mother here, a combination between Noah and Abraham, people who called out things, but perhaps don't do much. Okay, because Noah doesn't call out anything. He says, of course, I'll do, I'll do it. And Abraham does and calls. Is there a third model here? Like we perhaps are more into that. And what, what would that third model look like? That we call for injustices in the world and we say this is not good. And who, who, who is the owner here? What's going on? Why is this happening? And, okay. and why in that Alisa third model, what is Why Alisa is seated in the back road for Shabbat alive? You know, right. anyways. Why, it so wasn't first when I was coughing. <laughs> <laughs> Elias, what, in, according to this model, what is the obligation to act? It's tough. I mean, we, I believe we have the obligation to act, but sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't or, or we want to protect our families. And it's not that easy. So let me, let me pivot to you, Michelle. Um, how does one actually instantiate this midrash in our world? How does one actually do this midrash? If you take this midrash seriously, um, you know, the, the, the build, I'm going to respond to the building that's glowing, so that's radical amazement. We've got that down. I'm going to respond to the building that's on fire. What do we do? I think that takes us back to your sense of us as Noah and Van Tackle, right? Because fundamentally what Abraham does is he takes the matter to the Baal, to the creator of the world, and says with a lot of chutzpah, you know, what's going on here? We need you. We need you. Come down and be with us. Repair the world. So it's not just a matter. Like, it would be nice. I think you're, you're searching for the answer. No, that I'm we go out and we, you know, we do social justice and we, you know, we rally that cry to the world. 
and Hareza Mishabak. Like that is that is wonderful. But this story specifically speaks to finding our relationship with God again to call God to task and to say, we need you. Where are you? So can I just, I want to pause. I've been thinking about this a lot all week. I want to pause on your last point, which is that this Midrash inspires us to call out to God and say, God, where, where are you? And that whole, that whole move of God, where in the hell are you? The world's on fire. That's very classic and very Jewish. It's the psalm for Tuesday, and it's the psalm for Wednesday. Right? It's the, if you read the Shir Shal Yom, it's Tuesday Psalm and Wednesday Psalm. They're both psalms which say, God, the world is all the world is so messed up. Corruption is ascendant. Bad people are being uh, bad people are crushing good people. If you're God, where in the hell are you? That's that's Tuesday and Wednesday. So that so that that's that's voice. But I wanted to bring into the conversation one other voice. I've been thinking a lot about Abraham Joshua Heschel. So it's Heschel's 50th York site uh, in December. Now, here's, here's the thing about Heschel that is I, I was trying to dwell on this this week, and it really pivots off what you said. So Heschel is born. If you had to pick a time and a place to be born as a Jew, uh, which, of course, we don't get that pick, uh, Heschel's was the absolute worst. He's born in 1907 in Poland. Okay? 90% of Polish Jews, 27 out of three uh, out of three million Jews perish in the flames. Okay, ten percent survive. And Heschel's mother dies in the flames, and three of his sisters die in the flames. And in fact, he dedicates uh, his book um, Torah Min Hashemayim, Heavenly Torah, to the memory of his mother and his three sisters. He names them who all perish in the flames. Okay, Heschel is able to get out, and he comes to America, and he teaches at. HEC, and then he teaches at JTS. My father-in-law had him, um, and Rabbi Chill had him. And what is his response? He has two responses. His most classic book is God in Search of Man, not man saying to God, where in the hell are you? Where in the hell are you? Right. It's God, we need you. Please develop. Please, can we be in relationship? Can we have? Okay. Like, I think you're putting an edge, an edge on it that I'm doesn't just necessarily two, have to be. Positive. I'm just reading the Tuesday and Wednesday Psalms. The Tuesday and Wednesday Psalms have the word in the hell are you? If if you read the Tuesday and Wednesday Psalms. Um, but but I, I you're, you have a fair point. But um, uh, but his his uh, his approach is God is actually looking for us. And then his other big move, and I know you have to leave. Elisa's leaving not because she's offended, but she's teach, she's doing a, a session. Uh, yes. Elisa is doing a, a, a service at 11 o'clock with our young people in Cambridge. So that's where she's going. Roots. She's doing Roots. Uh, and I moved next year. Yeah, by all means. Um, and then the other, thi- the other thing that he does is radical amazement which is having lost his mother and three sisters, Heschel's other movement, it's remarkable, is let's look at these streets. Like, just look at the leaves outside and look how, you know, the, the leaves are orange and red and yellow and green and brown. Oh, my God, oh, my God, what a world. Those are his two impulses. Look at the leaves. Look at the fall foliage. Own it, savor it, claim it. And God in search of men. And this is for a guy who loses his mother and three sisters. And I'm wondering if that is uh, a modern instantiation of this midrash. Any thoughts? Then, then what? Then what? I want to. I mean, Elias, your your move about 
talking about injustice feels deeply familiar because all I do is talk of it. Um, but what about doing? I want to focus on the doing part. And let's say, you know, we, we say to God, God, we need to be in a relationship with you, or we're angry at God, or let's say, you know, we, we pull a Heschel and man is searching, God is searching for us. Let's say we use our relationship with God to get catalyzed and mobilized. My, my question, and I want to end the class on this question, is what do we do? How does the Abraham model of the Dorado lesson actually inspire us to act in this season when Sweden is becoming more Swedish? And, by the way, it must be added, and I care much more about this, though I care about the first, but I care much more about this, when Israel is becoming more Jewish and not angry at God. When Israel is become, when, a, when a guy with a Borch Goldstein portrait, who was always made everly ordained on the other side, that is just un, you know, is just un, not justified, not acceptable, and he becomes he goes from pariah in Israel by Israelis, by the IDF, by the courts, by the prosecutors, to pariah, and now the guy with the Borch Goldstein is now the kingmaker. That's that Swedish be freedom becoming more Swedish in a much more scary way. I Otsmai is the deep. Oh my God! What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I think I think it's um, it's not an easy answer because it's not that there is one issue in one country that we can all resolve by protesting and marching or going and changing people's lives. The world is all over with bad things going on. And uh, so how do you choose? How do you pick and choose which one you want to battle? And how do you suppose that, I don't know, I want to help refugees in, in any country in the world, that I'm quitting Temple Emmanuel just to go there. I mean, how am I feeding my kids? So it's, it's not such an easy answer of how to do what to do and if it's possible at all. Um, so I, I would say this, your question <laughs> reminds me of the question that's asked in the Talmud, which is greater, you know, study or doing. And the answer is study because it leads to doing. And I, I don't think, you know, we like to juxtapose Noah and Abraham, but you kind of can't have one without the other. Both are models that are in relationship with God, that are the right models for their space, for their time, for their place, and, and a move that we need at different points in our lives as a community. And so I would say, which is greater, study or doing? Well, study because it leads to doing. So the parallel to that is, you know, which is greater to, um, you know, to be out there doing the social justice or to be in relationship with God, either through the sense of, God, we need you, or God, wow, you know, thank you for being here. Um, both moves are about your address, your primary address is God. And if your primary address is God, then that ultimately leads you to wanting to help to repair God's world. Well, I think if you're in relationship with God, then every day you're listening and you're thinking, what more can I do to be more sensitive, to be more helpful, to be more kind, to be more responsive to the world that I see out there, to be a good partner. Yeah, can I, I want to close this this class with, uh, with a memory that it was very, I, I love when you're teaching a class and something unexpected happens. So Thursday night, 
um, we were doing a, a Zoom together about the Leonard Cohen books, Two by Fire, Leonard Cohen and the Silence. And I never expected what happened, which is that there were three people on the screen who had fought in the Seven Day Free War. And, and two of them had actually been there on Army bases and Air Force bases when Leonard Cohen sang. And they're, you know, like authentic real Israelis with authentic real Israeli English and members of Temple Emanuel. And I was there, and I was on the Hasor base, and I heard Leonard Cohen. And when you ask them, what do you remember about that concert? It was 49 years ago. I remember that he was there and that he cared. I was remember that he was there and that he cared. So here's what I take away from that, which is, um, and it's something that you know we, we've all talked about in different ways, but doing something is so much better than doing nothing. And doing something, even a little thing, can make a big difference. Um, and 49 years later, uh, these, these soldiers remember the feeling, remember how it felt when some cool Canadian Jewish guy with long hair who didn't speak Hebrew, um, and they didn't even understand his songs back then, but they knew he was there. And the question is, how can we be there? I'll just tell you, I'll answer my own question. I, I, I don't know what to do about Sweden. And I don't know what to do about America. And I don't know what to do about Israel. But I do know one thing for me. I'm speaking for me, not for anybody else. I've never felt more called and more summoned than now to go to Israel. Um, and in part, I go to Israel for personal reasons. My father-in-law is there for like my father and son. But in part, I just feel like I, you know, I want to go to Israel to to talk to Israelis. I want to talk to Palestinian Israelis. I want to talk to government officials. I want to talk to people on all sides of the spectrum. I think I would actually, you know, when I go to Hartman, and we've been to Hartman, they actually take you to settlers and settlements of the kind that the politics couldn't be more different than my own. Anyway, just speaking for myself. But it's just really interesting and powerful to hear different voices. So for me, um, the response to this really super terrifying moment, I mean, Thomas Friedman's column yesterday in the Times, the Israel we know is gone, right? So we can't, our, our response to that can't be sayonara Israel. I'm going to lock myself in my ark and, and, and be distant from it and hope, hope all's well and, and, and I'll be in my ark. No, if this Abraham Midrash lives, for me, it means go to Israel and be in an encounter. And I want to leave you with the question. I mean, my answer is not your answer, but we both have the same question. Uh, this Midrash is calling out to all of us to do something. Hannah, you got a song? Before the song, can I do an infomercial? Because sure. Frank Aronson and I are going together with some of our families to Israel in December, December break, with uh, a family mission. And if uh, we're welcoming not just parents, but also if there's a grandparent who would like to bring grandchildren, we have just three more spots that we could make into four if we really squeeze or five. But uh, if, if you're out there and you're feeling called in this moment, you can still come to Israel with us. And just showing how much I care about the world, I'm leading a temple trip to Italy <laughs> in the summer <laughs> to have good pizza and pasta. So please join me. Yes, no. So I brought, I brought a song that it's called Lo Alecha Am which is 
very truth for the, for the words prepared about. It is not your duty to complete the work, neither are you free to desist from it. But obviously, the rabbi suggested to me not to sing that song, to sing Lechilach, that is more appealing to the Parsha of the week, and we are going to do that, because if not, I'll be fired. And uh, so, let's... <laughs> I love you, Wes, and yes, I love teasing yes, you. Yes. Anyway, so let's do Lechilach, Koli. Lech, Michelle. Lechilach, to the land that I will show you. Lech lecha, to the place that you don't know. Journey, I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing, and you shall be a blessing. Shabbat shalom, guys. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>